Last spring, the Gallup organization came out with a new poll that marked a milestone in American life. For the first time in eight decades, less than 50% of Americans said that they were member of a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That number is down 20 points from just 21 years ago when 70% of the population of the United States in 1999 identified as a member of a religious group. And the survey indicates that the change that has been happening is largely due to a rise of people with no religious affiliation or no religious preference. That number has tripled in the last three years or so, and sociologists aptly call those people nuns. Not nuns as in Catholic nuns, but nuns as in they have none. They have no affiliation or preference. Now, if you've been paying attention at all to the society around us, that's probably not all that surprising to you. But it can be incredibly discouraging to see. And even though we know very, very clearly two things, Number one, that God has promised that his kingdom will expand on this earth as men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Jesus in greater and greater numbers until the world comes to its conclusion. We know that to be true. God makes that promise and we believe that promise. And number two, we know that even though there is a decline right now in the United States of America, Christianity as a whole is indeed growing worldwide at really quite an astounding rate. But even with those realities in place, when you live within a culture, when you breathe the air of a culture that has just a general spiritual malaise, or even worse, a hostility or a growing opposition to the gospel, Man, it could become easy to lose heart. It can become easy to say, I don't know if I really want to go on. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 answers two fundamental questions for the Christian life. And as is often the case when you, a- when you ask two really big questions, that leads to a number of other questions that rabbit trail off of it. But the two questions... The 2 Corinthians 4 answers are this. Number one, in a world with so much opposition to the gospel, how can Paul or anybody else, or how can we keep on going and not lose heart? And the second question is this. What is the most valuable thing that is achieved in our salvation? There are a lot of valuable things achieved in our salvation. What's the most valuable? And those are some pretty big questions. And the text this morning points really in many ways to the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. At its core, our faith in the Lord rests on these realities. And so please follow with me as I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Words will be on the screen behind me, or if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, it says this. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we, are, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, 
or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For, we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul begins the section with the assertion that we do not lose heart. He can say this with confidence because as verse 1 indicates, God is the one who gave them this ministry and it says that he did so by his mercy. Now that's an interesting concept. All of the difficulty that Paul is engaging in, all of the persecution, all of the ridicule, all the attack on his reputation, and he receives all of these things because of this ministry of the gospel. And yet, he says that this ministry is still actually from God's mercy. Now, when we think about mercy, we often think about mercy as being the alleviation of pain. <laughs> but for Paul, his pain is actually due to God's mercy. How could that be? Well, there has to be something else, something of greater value, something of greater significance that allows a person to view difficulty in ministry as part of mercy of God. The first place we can look for that thing of greater value is we can look backwards in the text. Paul begins with that word therefore pointing to what's behind it and we see that this ministry of the gospel is a ministry of glory, a ministry that transforms people. Verse 18 of chapter 3, we talked about it last week, says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so we see that this is a ministry at its core of glory. That Paul has not lost heart, that the glory of the Lord Jesus is such that even though he endures difficulty, it's worth it. He also goes on to describe his ministry as what we might say forthright or focused on truth. And that's in contrast to many who aren't preaching a gospel of transforming from one degree of glory to another, or many who are not forthright. Verse 2 points to that. It says, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, cunning is the same phrase that Paul uses later on in this book in chapter 11, verse 3, to describe the schemes of Satan. Satan is cunning. 
The word cunning simply means trickery or achieving your goal based on deception. And what Paul is saying that there are many who are using cunning and they are deceiving people in underhanded ways and they're using God, the gospel, and his word in certain ways to try to accomplish their own purposes. We know that that is the same today. That there are a lot of people out there who call themselves preachers or apostles or bishops or prophets who are exercising cunning, underhanded ways to profit personally from God. And the reasons for that are many. Ego, money, fame, control, and on down the line. I think of the story of the local student who went to the zoo and was surprised when he took a closer look at the enclosure for the zebras. Muhammad Sarhan was motivated to post what he saw on Facebook <clears throat> with a photo that appears to support his assertion that the two zebras at the Cairo International Garden Municipal Park are nothing more than donkeys with black stripes painted on them. The photo eventually went viral, prompting a variety of people to weigh in on the authenticity of the zebras, or lack thereof. Local news team contacted a veterinarian who claimed that the zebra snouts are usually black and that their stripes are usually more consistent or uniform, and that the striping on the animal in the photo, which was inconsistent, also sported a curious black smudge around his face. The zoo's director, Mohammed Sultan, insisted during a radio interview that the zebras were, in fact, real zebras. Similar accusations of donkey painting have been made at a lobbied local zoo in Gaza in 2009. They blamed their problem on the Israeli blockade that prevented it from purchasing actual zebras. But here's the point. Though similar in physical form, zebras and donkeys are distinctly different species. Just because someone says a certain thing or has a certain endorsement or is given a certain title doesn't mean that they're the real thing. And even in ministry, under the label of Christian, there's a lot of donkeys out there. Those who are using deception for their personal gain. You know, another way that ministers stray, Paul says, is through tampering with God's word. That's a dangerous game, to tamper with the very words of God. You know how offended you could become if someone misquotes you? <laughs> or misrepresents your intentions to somebody else. Imagine misrepresenting God and doing it sometimes intentionally, other times with maybe even good motives in mind. There are a lot of ways that people tamper with God's word. Typically, we would say that they either add to it, and that usually imposes a harsh legalism, or they take away from it. And in taking away from it, they could maybe teach a passage of Scripture that makes you feel good 
or inspires you in certain ways, but avoids the passages of the Bible that might be difficult or make you unhappy or angry. And thereby, those folks intentionally give you an incomplete picture of God. One could take away from God's word by taking a verse out of its larger context. We see this all the time. And in doing so, you can make that verse say almost anything you want it to say. And there are many reasons why people would do that because it could be inspiring, it could be encouraging, it could give you a penetrating application for your life right now. But one of the many reasons why we preach through passages and books of the Bible here at our church is because we want to communicate God's word in God's way. We don't want to manipulate it, even if there's short-term gain, because manipulating God's word is tampering with it. One could take away from God's word by simply taking a passage and turning it into a set of moral principles for your life. Moral principles that might be applicable to any number of religious systems or beliefs or ideas. And it gives you something to do at the end of the day, but it lacks the depth and the life of what God truly intends. And the list goes on. There are a lot of ways to be cunning There's a lot of ways to subvert the message of God through his word. But the true ministry of the gospel, Paul says, doesn't do that. Even if it creates tension, this ministry, even if it brings out persecution, even if it is so difficult that it makes you question whether or not you want to go on, even if people are not responding in the way and the time that you hope or that you might expect, Because there is something that makes it worth it for Paul not to lose heart by sticking to the true ministry of the gospel and by sticking to the word of God as it is given. There is something even greater, something to keep going, something that will not let you get discouraged. We might say that what Paul is referring to is the greatest good of the gospel. Remember just a couple minutes ago at the beginning of our time, I asserted that the questions that this text answers, what is the most valuable thing that is achieved for us in our salvation? In other words, what is the best thing about the gospel for you? And the answer is glory. God's glory And gaining access to God and his glory is the greatest good of the gospel for you. Let me show it to you. Look at verses 4 and verse 6 with me. In verses 4 and verse 6, you see two parallel verses that are describing what people don't have and describing what people can have. What people don't have because of the work of Satan, what people do have because of the work of God, and it's rooted in the same idea of glory. Verse 4 says this, of those who don't know the Lord, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing something, (laughs) from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel is described as the glory of Christ. Christ is described as the image of God. 
When someone doesn't put their faith in Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins that he offers, it is because their minds are blinded by Satan, who is referred to as the God of the world. What are they blinded from? They're blinded from seeing something. They're blinded from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Conversely, when God does save someone, he removes the veil and he gives them access to this glory. Look at verse 6. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God works to save someone, He gives their heart light to know something. What do they know? They know his glory. And it's seen in the face of Jesus. Your ability to know God in all of his glory is the greatest aspect of your salvation. Here's another way to think about it. I love the way that John Piper illustrates this. He asks the question, why do you want to be forgiven? What does forgiveness gain you? Amy and I rarely fight in our marriage. You might be happy to know. She's a great wife. We both work really hard to sacrifice for each other, to communicate, which is easy sometimes and less easy other times, and to express our love to each other. But, but, but on the rare occasion that there is a misunderstanding and that misunderstanding turns into something bigger and perhaps I have said something that I shouldn't have said, something that may have been harsh or may have lacked understanding, You can imagine that over the next number of minutes or maybe hours, it can get pretty cold in my house. She might, actually she probably doesn't want to be in the same room as me in those moments. And if she does, she certainly isn't talking to me. In that moment, I need forgiveness. There's a lot of things that I need, but the biggest thing that I need is forgiveness. But why do I want forgiveness? There's a right answer and there's a bunch of wrong answers. Do I want forgiveness so that by the time we reach eight o'clock, she can get the kids ready for bed and I don't have to? Is that why I want forgiveness? Wrong answer. (laughs) Do I want forgiveness so that she will cook dinner that night? Yes, but wrong answer. (laughs) Do I want forgiveness so that we can have physical intimacy sometime in our near future? Yes, wrong answer. I want forgiveness because I want her 
because I love her. I want forgiveness because I want to speak with her, because I want to spend time with her, because I want her to smile and to laugh with me. I want forgiveness because I want the chill to go out of the relational air in our house. I need forgiveness because I have offended her, and I want forgiveness because I want her. Not just the benefits of having her, but I want her. Why do you want God to forgive you? There's a lot of answers to that question. Is it because you want to avoid hell? Wrong answer. It's a good answer, but it's not the best answer. Do you want God to forgive you because you want his hand of blessing in your life? Wrong answer. Of course you want that, and it's a good answer, but it's not the best answer. Do you want God to forgive you because you want to attain heaven? It's good, but it's not a great answer. Do you want God because you want peace in your heart, and that's why you want him to forgive you? Wrong answer. Do you want God to forgive you because you want his promises to be fulfilled to you? Of course you do, but it's the wrong answer. You want God to forgive you because you want God. You want to hear from him. You want to know him more. You want to love him and to desire him and for him to love you and to desire you. You want to experience God in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. There is no one more powerful than God. There is no one more beautiful than God. There is no one that can do the things that God can do. And no one who by his nearness can change you in the way that God does. You want God not just for the benefits that God gives you. You want God to forgive you because you want him. And the reason why you want him is because he's glorious. And so you're beginning to see what you need to know. You need to know not just the benefits of God, but to know God. Why do you want to be forgiven? Because you want to experience God in all of his glory, not just part of God, not just God from a distance. You want to experience all of him in all of his glory. And this is the greatest aspect of the gospel. So what is the obstacle? to seeing and to knowing and to experiencing this glory of Christ. Well, verse 3 tells us, Paul says that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4 tells us the God of this world has blinded our minds, or the minds of unbelievers. According to Paul, and this is really important to know. This is, this is the fundamental nature of the spiritual battle that happens around conversion. How you become a Christian. According to Paul, people do not reject the gospel and then this rejection makes them blind. Nor do they choose to be blind. Satan is referred to the God of this world. In other places, he's referred to the prince of the power of the air. And 
Satan makes people blind, and therefore, as a result of their blindness, they choose to reject the gospel. It's not the other way around. Blindness here is called the veil over their hearts in chapter 3, verse 15. In chapter 4, it's a veil over the gospel. And here in verse 4, it's called the blinding of the mind, an inability to see the light. That's what blindness is, an inability to see the light. It's only seeing darkness. And that's the spiritual reality of the world, friends, blindness. The German poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe once said, None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe, falsely believe that they are free. (laughs) You might say the same about sight and blindness. None are more hopelessly blind than those who think they can see. (laughs) Have you ever met someone, of course you have, who's seen the glory of God for the very first time? Do you remember that experience for you? Do you remember the sense of exhilaration at having sight for the first time? There was a man who lives his whole life with physical blindness and undergoes an operation and can now see. For 51 years, Bob Edens was blind. 51 years of his life, he couldn't see a thing. The world was a black hall of sounds and smells. He felt his way through five decades of darkness. And then he could see. A skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation, and for the very first time, Bob Edens had sight. He found it absolutely overwhelming. As he said, I would have never dreamed that yellow is so yellow. I don't have words. I'm amazed by yellow, but my favorite color is red. I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon, and I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail. And of course, the sun rises and the sun sets. And at night, I look in the stars in the sky and the flashing light. I could have never know how wonderful everything is. That's what happens when someone sees the glory of God for the very first time. Everything takes on color and shape and texture. And it's amazing because they see God in his glory. But how can we see? How can the veil be lifted? Verse 5 says that this is why we proclaim Jesus and Jesus alone. Because what we need is not simply cunning or spiritual inspiration or a charismatic leader. We need Jesus Chapter 3, verse 16 says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. But if we just said that we're blind and we don't want to be blind and our blindness causes us to reject the gospel, then how can we turn to the Lord of our own volition? Well, we can't. God needs to do something. And so that's where verse 6 is so helpful in seeing God's phenomenal power and salvation. It says this, look at it with me, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. So verse 6 and verse 4 are in parallel, as we said. You want to see glory, but you can't. Verse 4, because you're blinded, which means that you're in darkness. That's what it means to be blind. The inability to see the light. But God does something when he shines a light and he lifts the veil whether that's described as the veil over our hearts or the veil over the gospel or the blindness over our eyes. And he shows us glory, his own glory. He shows us who he really is and spiritually we become alive and we see for the very first time this glory and it is shown in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does this through what we call recreation. The same God that said, let there be light, Genesis 1, 3, and the creation of the world is the same God that shines light on men and women and boys and girls who shines light into your heart as he lifts the veil. God created Adam in his image, but he fell from that glory. He could not see God's glory anymore because of his sin and he could not be in God's presence. God's people, Israel, fell from the glory of God at Mount Sinai as they turned away in their sin. They could not be in God's glory because of it. God would consume them. And so the tent of meeting needed to be outside the camp and veil, the veil needed to be over the face of the prophet Moses Glory was hidden. God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, 4. A light shines in the darkness. Same type of language. Darkness has not overcome it. And yet many remained in darkness due to this veil that the Lord of the earth, Satan, has placed over people's hearts. And now you see that that same creation power that God uses to create light and call it forth, he uses to recreate us spiritually by shining light again. It's as if God looks upon you and says, let there be light in the heart of that person. And as a result, you know glory. Can you see it in the Lord Jesus? God creates and now his spirit recreates. He does this to you by lifting the veil, by shining light into your heart, after which you turn to Jesus. You receive forgiveness and you know and experience glory. And God is doing that in some of you, even right now. And so what do you do? What do you do when you sense that God is enlivening your heart in a way that's never been before? You surrender to him. You confess your sin to him. You plead with him in your desire for him to be your God. You follow him. You bask in his glory. 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 God in all of his glory. That is the greatest good of the gospel. He is the most beautiful. He is truly the most awesome. He has the greatest power. That is what you can experience through salvation in Jesus Christ. He lets you see his glory. Your ability to know God in all of his glory 
is the greatest aspect of your salvation. And because of this, Paul says he doesn't lose heart. Because of this, you don't have to lose heart when the world around you doesn't look the way that you think it should look. When the people around you aren't responding the way that you want them to respond. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it seems to be following God and who is following God and who isn't, the glory of Christ is revealed for those that God has lifted the veil. And so you see, all of these ideas, blindness and sight, darkness and light, creation and recreation, the power of Satan and the power of God. I don't know about you, but man, I want my life to mean something of the greatest significance. What a sad thing to spend life on trivialities. What a sad thing to spend life on temporary pleasures or things that will be forgotten or things that will be destroyed or things of much lesser glory. But to have a life that sees and knows and experiences the thing of the greatest value, the greatest beauty, the greatest authority, the greatest splendor, the greatest majesty, life-giving power, glory, to have your life spent in pursuit of glory. I don't just want God for what he can do for me. I want God because he's God. <laughs> and I hope you do too. He is glorious. And he allows us to see it and to experience it. Glory that lasts after my career is over. Glory that lasts after my physical body is diminished. Glory that lasts after my bank account fades and is passed on to someone else. Glory that lasts after our culture is rendered obsolete. Glory that lasts after my breath leaves my body. This is glory that lasts after our nation tumbles. Glory that lasts even after the earth is destroyed. The glory of God is shown in the face of Jesus Christ and we can know him today. God lifts the veil. He shines lights into our heart and we can know glory, lasting glory forever. Let's pray. Father, by the power of your spirit, continue to lift the veil even of people here this morning. Let us see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, let us be a people who grow in our desire for you. Continue to show yourself to us. Continue to embolden us and strengthen us. Continue to draw our affections to the things of greatest consequence. 
Help us to shed the things of lesser glory and to pursue you in the greatest glory. We pray this in the name of the glorious one, Jesus. Amen.